Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 15. Welcome to Christ the King. We've been studying this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel as a church. We continue in it this morning, and we always try to look pretty closely at the text, so... Let me encourage you to have a Bible, your Bible, or one of the Bibles here out and in front of you as we go. We have heard read 1 Samuel 11. We're coming back to that. But we're starting this morning in a different Old Testament book. We're starting in Joshua chapter 4. So if you can do it, keep your finger in 1 Samuel 11. Don't lose the page, but go to the left. Three books to the left. You go past Ruth, past Judges. You come to Joshua. Go to chapter 4. Because here's the deal. There's 15 verses in 1 Samuel 11. And in verses 1 to 13... We're mostly in a place called Jabesh Gilead, and we're dealing with Nahash the Ammonite, and messengers go to Gibeah, and Saul rallies Israel, and they fight the Ammonites, and we'll talk all about that eventually. But where are we at the end of 1 Samuel 11? If your finger's still there, sorry, if you can do it, your finger's still there. What does verse 13 say of 1 Samuel 11? Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then look at verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And I I basically have one job to do this sermon, and that is, to explain this text such that verse 14 makes sense. Because I think understanding verse 14 is the key to understanding the story of Saul, frankly, and thus for grasping a key point of the whole book of 1 Samuel. So it's good you're here. Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? You just can't miss how important it is to the narrator that it's Gilgal, can you? Seven times in two verses here in 1 Samuel 11, either the name Gilgal or the pronoun there referring to Gilgal is used. Listen to me read it. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul... And all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Why Gilgal? Does the name ring a bell? Well, it would have for Israel, and you already know it's coming out of Joshua. That's why I have your other finger there. So turn to Joshua 4 and verse 1, and you remember where we are in Joshua. If you know this part of the Old Testament, Israel has been 40 years in the wilderness because of their lack of faith to enter the promised land. But then finally in chapter 3 now, the Lord of, of Joshua, the Lord gives instructions to Joshua about how to cross the Jordan River. 
And the priests are to carry the ark into the Jordan and the river stops and the last verse of Joshua 3 says, Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over the dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. It's the big deal. So then chapter 4, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So Joshua tells him to do it. Jump to verse 6. He says, Do this, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And they do it. They take the stones and then jump to verse 19. Joshua 4 verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan Joshua set up at Gilgal and he said to the people of Israel when your children ask their fathers in times to come what do these stones mean then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground for here it comes For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What's Joshua reminding them of as they come into Canaan? Answer, that the same God who dried up the Jordan dried up the Red Sea. It's a reminder of the Exodus. And we've been through this territory two or three times now. You know what I'm going to say next. What's the ultimate point of the Exodus event according to the song that Moses sings on the other side of the Red Sea? What's the climax of the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 following the crossing of the Red Sea? Exodus 15 verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Hebrew root in that verb to reign is the same, as I've said before, as the Hebrew root in the noun for king. To say the Lord will reign in Hebrew means the Lord is the king. The king of the nations, yes, but especially Israel's king, of course, which is why Joshua says in chapter 4, verse 24 of Joshua, that all the peoples of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. All the peoples will know that you, did you catch that? 
that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So then do you know what happens at Gilgal next in Joshua 5? What happens is covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. All those who weren't circumcised during the period of the wilderness wandering for 40 years, that whole generation, are now circumcised in verses 1 to 9. And then in verses 10 and 11, Israel has their first observance of the Passover in Canaan. And some scholars argue that's their first observance of Passover since the second year after the Exodus. Because what's the result of knowing that the Lord is king, brothers and sisters? That his hand is mighty. Well, the result is you properly fear him. And what does proper fear of the Lord look like in one's life? It looks like walking in his ways. It looks like obeying his commands. It looks like keeping his covenant And it is just a little bit of an aside, but let me say it as clearly here that you cannot rightly understand the Bible without seeing this, that there's a connection between kingship and covenant. The king establishes the covenant. The king promises to protect and to provide for his people so long as his people abide by the stipulations of the covenant. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East. That's how it worked for Israel too. Go back then to 1 Samuel 11 now and look again at verse 14. 1 Samuel 11. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Notice who's saying that. It's Samuel, not Saul. He calls the people to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. Here's the $64,000 question. Whose kingdom is Samuel talking to the people about renewing? Who's the king at Gilgal? When the people go there and they see those 12 stones, whose kingship are they being reminded of? It's the Lord's. It's Yahweh's kingdom that needs to be renewed. Because what is it, if I'm right, not everyone reads this this way, I just have to provide that caveat. But what is it, if I'm right, that the people of Israel are finally ready to acknowledge at the end of chapter 11 of 1 Samuel? I think The point is that they're ready to acknowledge what Samuel's been saying to them all along. Your king is the Lord. Your king is the Lord. That even as you go about installing a human king, you must first and foremost renew your allegiance to the rule of Yahweh. 
Because as I said in my sermon three weeks ago now, which seems like a long time, from 1 Samuel 8, where this whole thing got started, there is a king. There has always been a king. And there always will be a king. And his name is the Lord. Yahweh. The Lord of hosts. Remember how Hannah addresses him that way in chapter 1. The God of creation. And you know, if you've been with us just these last few weeks even, that the explicit problem since chapter 8 of 1 Samuel has been that the people are rejecting him. They want a king like all the nations, and that means they don't want the Lord as their king. Right? 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. Now I'm going to take some time now to bring us back into where we are at 1 Samuel 11. Maybe more time than I should, but I'm going to do it anyway. Verse Samuel 8, verse 5. The elders of Israel say, if you can look at it, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then it becomes clear what was behind the request that they were making, according to the Lord's words to Samuel two verses later there in chapter 8. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me. They have rejected me from being king over them. And so Samuel warns them concerning what they ask for in chapter 8, but they persist. And then you come to verses 19 and 20 of 1 Samuel 8, and it says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles when, of course, it's the Lord who fights for his people, isn't it? Chapter 7 was all about that. If you remember the great victory they had after their turning to the Lord. But now, in chapter 8, Samuel's old and there's this new threat and they reject the Lord. And the Lord gives them what they want, sort of. Chapter 8, verse 22, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king, which is then where we were two weeks ago when Deacon Marion led us so carefully through chapters 9 and 10. The people asked for a king. Chapter 9 introduces us to Saul. Literally, Saul in Hebrew means asked. It's what the name means. Did you know that? I I couldn't remember if Marion had said it or not. They get what they ask for. And who is that? Well, the text makes clear he was certainly very impressive physically. Yes? Head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. Not particularly spiritually minded as Deacon Marion demonstrated. All in all then, just right for this people. So it's not really a surprise that when the time comes in chapter 10 that the people finally see Saul, they like what they see. 
You recall how after privately anointing Saul, Samuel then called the people together at Mitzpah in chapter 10, where you hear again the verdict that we've heard a couple times already, repeated in verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19, Samuel says, Today you have rejected your God who saves you. Don't forget that language. You have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord. And then we have that scene with unmistakable overtones of judgment in which the lots are cast and the final one falls to Saul as we know it will. And after they manage to locate him, the people see him for the first time. And the text says when they stood, when Saul stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? Who the Lord has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. At last, they got it. So they thought. What could be more obvious? Most impressive, Saul is. Who better than this huge fellow to be a king for us so that we may be like all the nations? Who better to go out before us and fight our battles so that in all the excitement, we might miss something. We might miss the fact that Calling him king was the people's idea. You may have noticed, or if you didn't, you can check on it later, and you'll find that in chapters 9 and 10, neither the Lord nor Samuel has yet called Saul king. It's now all the people who acclaim this tall, good-looking young man as their king. We're to understand that nothing's changed. They're still rejecting the Lord. The question at the end of chapter 10 is, would the Lord reject them? Would they now cease to be the Lord's people? Will they simply be allowed to become like all the other nations, as is their clear vocal desire? No. No, they won't be. As readers, we know that won't be the case because we have known that despite their attempt to reject the Lord, chapter 10, verse 1 says, Israel remains his heritage. Or we know from chapter 9, verse 16, that the Lord's purpose for Saul is that Israel would continue to be my people, he says. In fact, Saul shall save my people, he says. So what happens immediately after the people acclaim Saul as their king, rejecting the Lord? Chapter 10, verse 25, what does Samuel do? He reminds them of the covenant. Verse 25 of chapter 10. We're coming to 11, I promise. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship 
And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord, before the one they're hoping to be rid of, you see? And I think it's likely he wrote the passage from Deuteronomy 17 that we talked about three weeks ago. If you remember that, how Moses in Deuteronomy 17 looked ahead to a time when Israel would ask for a king. And Moses wrote how that king was not to be like all the nations and how he was not to take and take and take and was to reign only under the Lord his God, keeping and doing all the words of his law. I think that's what Samuel says to them. So that we come to 1 Samuel 11, and here's where I think things are at. The people are bent on abandoning the kingship of God by getting a king for themselves so they could be like all the nations. And in one way, they get what they ask for. They get Saul, who looks like what they think a king should look like. But by the grace of God, Samuel doesn't let it in there. Which means that now they have a king, or at least they have someone they've declared king. And thanks to Samuel, or no thanks to Samuel, they have the written terms by which God's kingdom must be preserved. They had a king, but in fact they're not to be like all the nations. No. So verse 25 ends, chapter 10, verse 25, then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Samuel does, sends them away, not Saul. In fact, Saul went home too. Because king or no king, God will rule his people by his word. The king submits to the prophet. And some men of valor, the text says, whose hearts God had touched go with Saul. But otherwise, this is not what the people had in mind. So you remember how chapter 10 ends in verse 27? Even though verse 24 had said that all the people shout, all the people shouted, long live the king when they saw Saul. By the time you get to verse 27, what is the attitude that's emerging? You see it? But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him. Oh, but they loved what they saw in Saul. Just the man they wanted. None like him among all the people. Until they saw that his appointment did not, in fact, accomplish what they ultimately wanted. How can this man save us, they ask. Not because Saul lacks some physical ability but because Saul's first act as king is one of obedience to Samuel, the Lord's prophet. They don't like it. So the text says they were worthless men, which is like Hophni and Phinehas, right? Remember them? The worthless sons of Eli. 
from chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, who did not know the Lord, the text says. Remember that? They did not know the Lord. Because in fact, here, the Lord had chosen Saul for the very purpose of saving his people, and that's what they now question. And that's precisely what chapter 11 is all about. And I better move quickly because I'm almost out of time. And all I've managed to do is frame it. So we talked about where it ends in verse 14, chapter 11, and we've talked about what has led up to it in the very end of chapter 10. So what do we say about chapter 11 itself? You see, the question is, how do you move from what you're reading there at the end of chapter 10 to what I'm arguing is being said in verse 14 of chapter 11? Well, the whole chapter is about salvation to start with. The whole thing answers the question at the end of chapter 10. How can this man save us, they ridicule? And, of course, the answer is he can't. Not on his own. It's only as the Lord acts as their true king to deliver his people and uses Saul to do it that he can save them. Three times in this chapter, the language of salvation is used. Did you notice that when Nicole read it? It's in verse 3, when the elders of Jabesh say, they'll search for one to save us from the Ammonites. It's in verse 9, when the message comes back that they shall have salvation the next day. And then most importantly, to bring it all together, it's on the lips of Saul in verse 13, who sums up the whole thing exactly correctly when he says today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel that's what the narrative is meant to portray it's exactly what Samuel says the people had forgotten had rejected back in chapter 10 verse 19 remember I said to hold on to that language But today, Samuel says, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. But even as they try to reject him, God saves them anyway. And Saul's involved, of course, but the point of the text is that it's not Saul's height or strength that saves them. It's God working in him. I mean, we come to chapter 11 and we suddenly meet King Nahash. He's an Ammonite. The Ammonites lived to the east of Israel. You know the present-day city of Ammon, right? East of Israel, same place. In Jordan, we've been almost, though, so far in 1 Samuel, exclusively focused on the Philistines who are to the west. So this sudden shift to the Ammonites seems surprising. But it's not, if you know a bit of your Old Testament. The Ammonites, like the Moabites, are descendants of Lot. There had been antagonism between with the Ammonites that goes back to Israel's encounters with them on their journey to the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 23. More recently than that, the Ammonites had repeatedly been aggressors against Israel during the time of the Judges, which came right before 1 Samuel. If you know the book of Judges, you might recall that Jephthah was the judge who roundly defeated the Ammonites and delivered Israel from their threat for a time. 
Well, that time's over. And the threat's back. And so verse 1 says, Nahash went up and besieges Jabesh Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. And what's surprising isn't that the Ammonites are besieging Jabesh. The surprise in this context is that the men of Jabesh say, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Right? Where's the reference to the one who so recently has been acclaimed by all the people as Israel's king? The people wanted a king so that he would go out before us and fight our battles, and now they don't even reference him. Why? Well, I think it's because the question that's raised by those worthless fellows at the end of chapter 10 reflects a much more widespread opinion in Israel now. How can this man save us? In fact, they seem to have assumed that he couldn't. In fact, to request a treaty with Nahash is effectively to ask Nahash to become their king. Though I think the cruel response of verse 2 is more than they bargained for. Nahash says, on this condition I'll make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes. Which then means that they can't hold a shield and focus in battle, right? So they're defenseless. And thus bring disgrace on all Israel, he says, implying that the rest of the nation wasn't going to come to their defense. And the elders don't sound very hopeful, do they? Verse 3. Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. Think about that. They know they need to be saved. They don't cry out to God for salvation. And evidently, they have no expectation that Saul will save them either. Saul doesn't even come to their minds All they have is this vague hope that someone might save them. So the messengers go out, and at some point they come to Gibeah. It's not at all clear that they went right to Gibeah. In fact, I don't think they did. But they come eventually to Gibeah, where Saul is. And do they go to Saul? No. They report the matter in the ears of the people, the text says. And all the people wept aloud. I mean, where's this king? The thought of Saul saving them evidently didn't even cross the minds of his own townsfolk. They didn't send for him. So in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 11, Saul, the text literally reads, Saul just happens to be coming from the field with some oxen, and he has to ask them. What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. You see, Saul was the one who'd been appointed by God to save his people. He'd been acclaimed by all the people as king, and now no one looks to him for help. We don't even know where the men of valor are who'd gone home with Saul that day. They're they're evidently not there either. And what I think is happening is that the view of those worthless fellows at the end of chapter 10 was in fact the view of most of the people of Israel. They'd rejected the Lord. So when it becomes clear that Saul's just subordinate to Samuel, the Lord's prophet, well, so much for that. I mean, they seem quite sure that this man couldn't save them. 
It wasn't very long, it seems, before they didn't even think about him anymore. Which is precisely the right moment for the Lord to act. Verse 6. The Lord acts. The news finally made it to Saul. (laughs) The text sounds like that. Eventually, Saul finds out, which is now where the narrator's focused. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled, and suddenly everything's changed. Whereas Saul thus far had done nothing to indicate he was king except just receive the now forgotten acclamation of the people, chapter 10, the Lord's now ready to use Saul to save his people. He sends his spirit just as he had to Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah, and in particular Samson in Judges 15, where that same verb to rush is used to describe the Spirit's coming on Samson. And Saul then acts. Now he acts. And in fact, he acts in some ways that are intentionally, I think, meant to evoke the judges, but we've got no time to talk about that. The point is the Lord's with him. And the message that Saul then sends is clear. Look at the message there in verse... Sorry. I lost it. Verse 7. Look at the message in verse 7 of chapter 11. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel... So shall it be done to his oxen. Note that. It's Saul and Samuel. Like it or not, Saul wasn't going to be a king like all the nations. It wasn't a matter of rejecting Samuel and choosing Saul. This kind of kingship was not on offer to God's people. That's the point. No matter what they want. What then happens, verse 7b, then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. And they came out as one man, just as Saul's inspired by God's Spirit and acts so then the people respond to Saul because of the hand of the Lord upon them. They hadn't seen him in this light before. Suddenly the victory is now Israel's that day. And we're meant to see clearly the point, aren't we? That it is only and always the Lord who saves them. In fact, he works through the king they'd already given up on. So verse 12, we come to verse 12 of chapter 11, and it's obvious to everyone that they've been dead wrong. They've been wrong. So who do the people talk to in verse 12? Samuel, right? They talked to the prophet of the God they'd rejected. The one whom they had not obeyed when they asked for a king like the nations. The one who nevertheless made clear the rights and duties of the kingship and then sent Saul packing home. Samuel's authority continues. And watch then the language in verse 12. (laughs) <laughs> I read it this way. Um, Samuel, who who is it exactly that said, uh, 
shall Saul reign over us? That wasn't us, right? Bring them. Bring that bring those guys that we may put them to death. It was them. Well, it was all of them really. The thing they got right was the seriousness of rejecting the one they now saw was God's king. And so it is, of course, the king who responds. And it's in Saul's response of grace that the people discover something about their God. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul Saul doesn't say he did anything. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. God had proven himself to be their God who saves them from all their calamities and distresses. Turns out this man could save Israel, but not by virtue of his own abilities. The Lord had anointed him. The Lord had empowered him. All of which then brings us back to where we started in verse 14, I think. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Let me quote from a commentator that I think gets it pretty well here, exactly right at this moment. The location of this assembly in Gilgal and the underlying problem that had been behind the whole push from the people for a king, namely the fact that this was an expression of their desire to be rid of God as their king, suggests that Samuel's call to renew the kingdom has a deeper meaning. By all means, they should reaffirm their recognition of Saul as the one chosen by God to be their leader. But more importantly, they must reaffirm their recognition and acceptance of the Lord as their king. The kingdom that was most in need of renewal was the kingdom of God. So all the people went to Gilgal. Verse 15 says, they wouldn't obey Samuel a couple chapters ago. Now they go where he says. And there they would see 12 stones. And there they would listen as Samuel speaks the words that we're going to consider next week in chapter 12, because chapter 12 is what Samuel says at Gilgal. (laughs) That's next week. And there, finally, from our text, we know that they would make Saul king, but they do it, verse 15, is careful to note, before the Lord. Because the whole point is that Saul's made king in the presence of the king. The people had returned. And so our chapter ends by saying there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. 
Brothers and sisters, the same joy can be ours. The same joy they have at turning to the Lord, at restoring the kingdom, it can be ours this morning if we return to the Lord. Your kingdom come, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God is your king. And Israel comes to recognize the Lord is their king in light of the work of salvation he had done that day for them. Which, though in a different key, is precisely what we do now as we come to the Lord's table, isn't it? When we see again the work of salvation accomplished by Jesus, our King, meaning we too can have peace before God, can rejoice greatly, can live our lives in obedience to Him. For as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.